Helping people discover their personal sense of calling and mission is incredibly rewarding. So is using applied research strategies to identify student drivers of engagement. These are some of Dr. Sam Jones' primary callings within his career, and he accomplishes them in a variety of ways. What does it look like to promote a sense of purpose for MBA students at the prestigious Wharton School? What tools and strategies have proven most effective at achieving this goal? Sam Jones is a director at the Wharton School who leads the technology vertical at MBA Career Services. He's also our guest on this week's episode of the Purposeful Work Podcast. Welcome to the Purposeful Work Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Dick. The Purposeful Work Podcast is brought to you by PathwayU, an online career assessment system that uses predictive science to help you find joy, meaning, and purpose in your career. For more information and to join, go to pathwayu.com. That's pathway, then the letter u.com. It's such a joy to welcome Dr. Sam Jones to this episode of the podcast. Sam is a man of many impressive roles. One of those roles is having one-on-one -on -one career advising conversations with MBA students at the Wharton School on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. He coaches students. He has placed more MBAs at big tech companies like Google and Amazon than any other career advisor in the country. Sam is also a consultant, a research fellow in the famed Positive Psychology Center at UPenn, and serves as a lecturer at Penn's Graduate School of Education, of which he is also an alum. Sam's graduate work focused on the psychology of work identity. He's a champion of work as a calling, which makes him a perfect guest for our podcast. Sam, welcome. Thanks for having me. Sam, I was in San Francisco a few years back. I told you this story. I was presenting at a conference, and I remember very clearly at the end of the conference uh, sharing an Uber with a sharply dressed millennial heading to the airport. And I noticed his luggage tag. It had a Wharton logo. So I asked him what he was in town for, and he said, he said, I'm an MBA student. I'm interviewing for jobs at some of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. And I asked him right away, do you know Sam Jones? And the guy's face just lit up. He had, he had worked with you very closely. You had helped him prepare for these interviews he had just done. I could tell he was just brimming with gratitude for all the ways that you helped him succeed. What led you into career development work, and how did you land at the Wharton School? Well, that's a really generous story. Thanks, thanks for sharing it. And I remember him. He's a really, really great person. Well, at the Wharton School, we talk to students about all the best practices for your job search. You know, really strategically selecting uh, organizations, uh, networking, really customizing your resume and your pitch. And to get my job at the University of Pennsylvania, I didn't do any of that. So I saw a job online on the job portal and I applied to it. Two days later, the career office called me and I went through a series of interviews, which led to a job offer. Um, so I did not take my own advice and and how to get a job, but I, I think it shows there's a lot of different ways to to end up in a role. Um, so but it's what do, do what I say, not what I do, right? <laughs> Something like that. Something <laughs> like that. Um, but what led what led me there was I had been working in an HR consulting firm where we did uh, assessment training, we did executive coaching, and so I had a real interest in helping people develop their own talent and thrive in the workplace. Um, at the same time, at that point, I had, I had also had my master's degree in higher education and was interested in, in working in a university setting where there'd be a little bit of a, a longer term 
work with students, whether it be four years with undergrads or, or two years or so with MBA students. And, and so I was interested in working in this environment where could not only as an insider influence people's career development one-on-one, -on -one, but influence the system that helps to develop them and set them on a track. So those are some of the things that were attractive to me about, about working at, at Wharton. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. I, and I, I've kind of been dying to ask you this. I think our listeners would love to hear your answer to this question. You work at the number one ranked business school in the world with some of the most talented, achievement-oriented, driven future business leaders. But you're an apologist for approaching work as a calling. So what is it like to work with these MBA students at Wharton? And how do you introduce concepts like pursuing a purpose at work? Right. I think there are a lot of stereotypes of what MBAs are like. And I, I think at their core, the MBAs that I work with at Wharton are, ex are extremely talented. They're very bright. They have big intellects, uh, very gifted socially, and they want to do interesting work and they want their work to be impactful. Um, so that really is something that, that drives them and, and taps into their motivations. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, at the company Google, they have an internal system for career coaching. And I got to speak once with the head of that system and we were just you know, swapping stories about what it was like uh, to work in, in our different organizations. And there was a commonality between our two populations. And it, it's, uh, it was something unique and special is that the, the people that I work with are, are really in some ways so gifted, more gifted than I am, that their gifts don't really restrict what they can do. There's mm -hmm. so many things that they could do successfully. And the, the challenge for them is determining what are they really interested in. And uh, whereas for many of us, like myself, my gifting limits, we you know what I do, but, but for them, there's, there's a uniqueness and I think who, they're, who they are. And so the message of calling has, has resonated because of the way that we approach it and define it. And, and the way that we define calling at, at Wharton is uh, essentially using your gifts to make an impact or mm -hmm. using your talents to make an impact, using your strengths to make an impact. So it's really about clarifying what people's strengths are and the type of impact they want to have in their work. And that has you know, resonated uh, with many of our students. So the typical Wharton MBA then, um, when, when you start to ask questions about impact, is this something that they, they've thought through a great deal? Is it... You know, do they, do they raise questions about what exactly you mean by impact? What type of impact? How does that usually go? Right. It's a range. So in our, in our classes, there are almost 900 students in our first year class and our second year class. And, and people are really along a spectrum in, in how deeply they've reflected on their past experiences and the type of impact they, they want to make. But when we ask people to write about impact, they often write about helping organizations thrive in some way, organizations grow or they talk about helping people in some way. So helping them be more productive, helping them be happier, helping them be, hel uh, helping them be uh, more efficient in what they do. Um, so there's, there's varying degrees, but, but many, many of our students are able to be very specific about the type of impact that they want to have. And because they work in business, they're often thinking about consumers and end users, or they're thinking about organizations and the roles that those organizations play in communities and in societies broadly. Sure. Sam, what would you say is key to finding and living out a calling? I think it's really an identity question. It, it's really about looking at, at ourselves and answering the question, who am I? 
Um, what are my strengths? What are my talents? What are my interests? What are my values? And, and as you answer that question, the calling is about externalizing those things through your work and having an impact through your work. Um, so I think it really begins with a lot of self-reflection on our past experiences. And it's one of the benefits um, in my seat of working with graduate students, uh, business students, because they typically have four to five years of work experience that they can, they can draw from. So they're in a, really a stage of, of later early adult development to answer the question, who am I? Um, yeah. So I think that that's where it begins and assessments can be helpful. Feedback from other people can be helpful. You know, looking back and, and thinking about the pros and cons of each of your jobs, what you liked, what were the highs, what were the lows um, is all a part of it. And then on a value level, what is really important to you? You know, we have some students who major in healthcare. So influencing the healthcare system is really important. Some students are interested in technology and there's all sorts of problems that technology companies solve at scale. Many people go and work at finance and, and they understand that businesses need to be financed, organizations need to be financed, schools need to be financed, that having a healthy economy is the foundation of a, of a thriving community. And so our students will often begin to make these connections between their skills and this type of impact. And when we ask students to write a calling statement, and, and they range from starting off as, as quite general, you know, using, using my gifts and finance to help a company, mm. um, <clears throat> help a company grow, uh, to something that's much more specific, perhaps a around using business acumen in a healthcare company to advance um, gene therapy. Um, so there's there's this range of specificity. Interesting. I know you've collected some data on this topic as well, Sam. Tell us a little bit about your research. What's the project that you're most excited about right now, and, and what are you learning from it? We had the opportunity to do a, a semi a quasi random control study. Uh, where we put a group of people into a calling treatment and another group of people into a control treatment. And it was an experiment that we ran for, for two years with, with graduate students. And in the treatment group, we brought them through a set of exercises and lectures uh, over a 90 minute period on calling and creating a calling statement. And with the control group, we simply went through a career self-assessment. And in the treatment group, we collected their statements and then we emailed them back to the, the participants uh, at several points of time during their job search. And we wanted to see if first defining a sense of calling and then making that calling salient and giving the participants advice on how to use their calling statement, for example, in answering an interview question or, or pitching yourself in a networking appointment would make a difference. And our research actually showed that it did on, on two dimensions. One was eight months later, the treatment group maintained a higher sense of calling on a calling assessment, actually a calling assessment that you wrote, <laughs> the brief calling scale. Okay. And they also had, uh, they also obtained their internships more quickly than the treatment, than the control group. So there was something about the, the salience of the statement that had an effect both on viewing one's work as a calling, as well as obtaining uh, the internships they wanted more quickly. And there was no difference between the, the proportion of internships across different industries between the control and the treatment group. Um, so it was a really fascinating um, study for us and, and one that we're excited to, to publish and, and let other people re uh, reflect on and, and comment on as well. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, there I know there are a handful of um, 
studies that have tested different ways of attempting to foster a sense of calling. And sometimes, you know, they're able to move the needle on these attitudinal outcomes, like how meaningful people experience their work or their life. And you're talking about kind of uh, increasing a sense of calling. But what's unique is there's a very real tangible behavioral outcome and length, length of time to land a position. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And we were, we were really excited by that outcome. So I just flooded with ideas for extending that into the job search and, you know, using some of those ideas with other populations, job seekers, workforce centers. I think you're, you're doing amazing work and you, you can see all kinds of really incredible applications. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of ways we're thinking about it as well in terms of um, motivation um, and effort and, and focus that potentially this, this calling statement has. Uh, because it's, it's really guiding people to think more deeply about who they are and the kind of impact they want to have. And, and perhaps there's greater clarity in selecting roles and opportunities. And perhaps there's greater self-presentation in the interview process. So we want to we explore those questions. Absolutely. Now, can I put you on the spot for a moment? The, the, the calling statement, what's yours? My calling statement is uh, to use my knowledge of education, psychology, and career development to help people engage in meaningful work. Wow. Very concise. That packs a punch. It's powerful. Yeah. (laughs) And I can see how all the things you're describing align with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned in the process of helping people understand their strengths. You talked about using assessment and I know in the work that you do, you use a lot of assessments. How do you choose the assessment tools that you use? Are there particular criteria? Mm-hmm. One, I think you want to choose an assessment tool that's right for your audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for us at Wharton, like many business schools, we use an assessment called Career Leader because it's built for business professionals. Um, it has a career matching section, and, and all of those sections are for business professionals. So it wouldn't really make sense for someone in business school to be matched to a profession such as surgeon, um, mm-hmm. because that's that's not what they're there to study. Uh, so that I think you want a, a, an assessment that is appropriate for your audience. And then the other is there's a there's a whole science behind assessments, and there's an organization you're probably a part of, SIOP. Mm-hmm. that uh, the Society of Organizational Industrial Psychologists who put out guidelines for assessment where it talks through, how do you know if this assessment is really measuring what it says it's measuring? Um, that's validity. Uh, every time you use it, if it says it's, it's measuring an attribute, is that measurement similar on the same person or is it wildly different? That would be reliability. And then if someone takes another assessment that measures the, the same you know, construct, maybe it's extroversion, does the, the both assessments have similar results? And um, so there's these criteria you look at for really well-defined assessments. You, you look at the group that they're normed on. How many people took it? Is it representative of your population? We have a lot of international students at Wharton. So we, it was important to us to also have an assessment that we knew was inclusive of international populations because that, that's not the case with all assessments. Right. Um, so those are some criteria. And, and there's there's some really older assessments as well that I really like because they've been around for so long and gone through different editions. Uh, we talked before, I, I love the 16 personality factors, mm-hmm. which is a, a big five model, but with, with greater detail than the big five. And I, I think it's a, it's a really fantastic tool for understanding yourself or understanding teams or, or applicants. Yeah, I mean, you're using these tools to help people make informed decisions that impact their future. It seems 
pretty essential that the information you're using is good, you know, is accurate. And so, you know, paying attention to the ways that researchers establish evidence for that mm -hmm. seems really important. So what, what advice would you have for somebody then who, who tells you that they Googled career test and then took whatever the first thing was that came up? I would really caution them in saying that uh, the results may not be true. They may not be valid. They may not be trustworthy. And I would really caution them from making any decisions on a, a career assessment that they that they simply found online. Um, you, you really want to um, get some advice on the right assessment to take um, so that you you know it's been designed properly. And the uh, the inputs that you'll get from that assessment for making decisions are, are ones that um, other people have used and uh, social scientists would say we, we trust these. It, it's, this isn't so clear cut, but something that is interesting to me is broadly speaking, there are some assessments that you can legally use in hiring and some assessments you cannot mm -hmm. and uh, because they don't meet thresholds of uh, validity and reliability. Um, so, for example, the 16 personality factors is an assessment a company could use to hire people. Whereas something like the Myers-Briggs should really not be used for hiring people. And even when it's marketed, you'll see these nuances of saying, oh, this is for uh, self-discovery or this is for yeah. team building. And then they'll say, this assessment can be used for hiring. Um, that can also be a, a, a benchmark for the quality of the tool. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you and I have talked about this before, but there's this wariness of some instruments that have you know, what seem like cult-like followings uh -huh. uh, among folks who really, you know, just maybe aren't um, equipped, uh, given their background or training, to understand the level of rigor and, and research that goes into establishing that type of evidence you're talking about, reliability and validity, but it's so crucial. Uh, and so I think that's one of the roles that career development professionals have is being able to understand and and kind of provide good information about the difference between good sources of information and ones that aren't great. I 100% agree because you you have instruments that are like antibiotics yeah. uh, in a science perspective and then you have instruments that are more homeopathic. Right. You know, there are these like potions that have been thrown together in someone's someone's kitchen. So you know, instruments uh, that are very popular, like the Enneagram, uh, don't really meet these thresholds for reliability and validity, even though they're very popular and, and perhaps your aunt or your cousin, you know, really likes it. But I would really caution people from making uh, real career and life decisions with an instrument that doesn't meet those type of criteria that, uh, that we're talking about on this podcast. Well said. Sam, I know you work with organizations as well, and you know, especially during this pandemic period and, and with all the uncertainty and changes in the world of work, individuals are in the driver's seat of their own career development, but careers for many, many people do unfold within an organization. So what would you say are some organizational practices that you think are really important in fostering purposeful work? I really appreciate organizations that study themselves. Uh, these organizations that have these growing you know, people, people operations teams you know, filled with uh, you know, people with degrees, uh, often in psychology or organizational degrees, that are really collecting data on the organization to figure out what, what causes engagement, what causes people to be satisfied with their work, to feel challenged, to feel a sense of belonging, and that uh, identifying these key variables 
um, and then experimenting with them to figure out what what can they do to um, increase increase types of engagement. So the first thing I would say is organizations that study themselves and then act on it. Um, and another one is a really clear culture. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of the organizations I work with have been very thoughtful about who they are and who they're not. And people can really opt into those organizations because they they really feel like it's a good fit, right? Some organizations are known for being very direct, that you'll get very direct feedback. They sometimes call it radical candor. Mm. And there are some people that feel like that's great to get that much feedback, that much development, to have people that to be on, that honest with me. I want that. Other people want to be in a culture that's known for being nice. You know, they if someone's going to give them you know, that kind of feedback, they want it to be in a context where they've also been really encouraged and supported. Mm. Perhaps it's, it, that feedback is only done privately. Um, so those are two different types of people who want two different types of culture. And, and the more companies are articulate about who they are, I think that's really beneficial. And then there's some you know, tried and true uh, things that we know about um, employee engagement, things like autonomy, giving people as much autonomy as possible, um, creating environments where self-development is rewarded as well as achievement is rewarded. Um, so you're continuing to um, prompt people to develop their skills and then use those skills and those talents in, in your workplace. Um, so those are some of the things that I see the best companies do. And, and then on the front end, they're able to codify through their interview and assessment process on the front end. Um, so it's not just the responsibility of the job candidate to know that they're opting into the right company. But in addition to assessing your skills, they're, they're truly trying to assess your cultural fit. Um, yeah. and, and those are some really, really great best practices. And, and what would you, I mean, how would you describe the role of, of leadership in establishing that type of environment um, that's really facilitative of people living out their callings? It's critical. It has to be a part of the language that they use in talking about the work being an aspirational place, uh, being a place of meaning, uh, talking about what's being done for the users of their products or their consumers, uh, the good that they're doing in society, uh, the ways in which they've had missteps and they're trying to be better. Um, So I think the language, it must be authentic to the brand, but that's really important. Uh, we've talked about staffing. So actually having uh, people who are in the talent space that are studying the organization and seeking to put uh, programs in place, uh, reward systems in place, all of that's important, uh, that it's baked into the review process, uh, the types of behaviors and attitudes that you're looking for from, from your workforce. Um, so the leadership has to support this type of culture. And, and if they only support the bottom line, you won't have this type of engaging culture. Um, which I really think the next few decades are going to be about competing for the best talent. Mm-hmm. And we really see this, this talent pool between companies trying to get, um, get people who will come and, and do the work that needs to be done. But at, at some point, money in and of itself is, is not the reward. There's, mm-hmm. there's other rewards around the engagement, the sense of meaning that we're talking about. So I think it's critical to pay attention to this. And, and leaders are the ones that create the priority of paying attention, as well as being guardians of the authenticity, that it's not just language and speech, but it's really being built into the DNA of, of the brand of that company. Yeah. You mentioned where things are headed in the future, and I've already asked you kind of to share what your own calling is, your, your calling statement. Callings evolve over time, and you know, I'm curious what you think about how your calling may evolve, given, you know, what we know and what your thoughts are about where things within your space are headed. Mm-hmm. 
I'm, I'm becoming increasingly interested in the topic of well-being right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned I teach a, a course at the Graduate School of Education. And I, I teach a class to education majors about student development. And in the course, we, we talk a lot about uh, well-being, positive affects. Uh, we draw upon just some of the heritage of Penn. We're, we're both the uh, beginnings of cognitive behavioral therapy with Aaron Beck and positive psychology with Martin Seligman. So this this idea that well-being is is not just a goal, but it's a resource. And when we have greater well-being, you know, the ability to to manage our own stress, to have perspective over our lives, to in, increase positive affect through gratitude, all all of this this broad topic and how it fits into career development is something I'm becoming more and more interested in. And so a way that I see my own career. Uh, continuing to develop is uh, through researching, through writing, and through um, just bringing in some perhaps new ideas into how we develop both students and how we develop people in in the workplace. So I'm I'm really I'm really excited about that. That's fantastic. What what is the greatest source of well being for you within your work? One of the first things that came to mind is some of the relationships I have with my colleagues. Mm-hmm. because uh, relationships are so important to our well-being. And there have been a number of people that I've worked with for a, for a long time, a few people that are new, but we really enjoy working with each other. Uh, we like to laugh together, um, but we're always, I think something that we share together is we want the career management office to be continually better. You know, we're, we're constantly innovating. Um, right now we're working on a a learning platform for our students in career development that's AI driven, which is super interesting. Um, we're always looking at new ways to engage companies, especially in the virtual world. So my my colleagues are this just source of life for me. I love ideating with them and and working with them. So they're a really great uh, great source for me. That's interesting because you're describing all of this uh, these efforts to innovate, and um, you know I'm imagining how exciting it it must be to dream up. Uh, some of those strategies, but for you, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I can tell that excites you, but it's really the relational component around that where collaborating with like-minded folks toward shared goals is really life-giving for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great summary. (laughs) Sam, this has been a blast. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the Purposeful Work Podcast. The Purposeful Work Podcast is brought to you by Pathway U. Jordan Way is producer of the podcast. To learn more about Pathway U, go to pathwayu.com. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, Pathway U is offering a 20% off coupon code. When you check out, simply enter the code PurposePod. I'm your host, Brian Dick. We'll see you next time. <laughs>